name's Daryl, and um, you, you know, I have my welcome uh, to Data Mics. Uh, it's good to have you with us tonight, and it is a warm evening. Um, it is a warm one, so um, uh, we are. I'm, I'm, I'm wary. You might either want to write down notes or something that helps you concentrate a little bit extra <laughs> uh, during this time. Uh, let me pray once more before uh, we come before this part of God's word. You want me to do that? Yeah, okay. Whoa. Okay. Uh, Father, we do pray uh, now that as we come to think about this, uh, this teaching from your son, that you will humble us and you'll challenge us where we need to be challenged and comfort us where we need to be comforted. We ask this in his name. Amen. So we are thinking tonight about what... Jesus said about love, and it is one of those English words uh, with an incredibly wide, incredibly broad semantic range. It's a word that probably carries a little bit too much of a burden of responsibility in a sense. Uh, We use the same word, love, to describe how we feel about our favourite food as well as our children or our family members, our parents, uh, and sometimes depending on the day we feel differently about each of them. Uh, I want to apologise in advance if you're the kind of person who doesn't like references to Beatles, and I realise that I feel like I keep referencing them. Uh, I was talking at 8am this morning, and I gave an e- this example about the Beatles, and uh, Christine Lucan, if anyone, if you know her, she uh, spoke to me after the service and she said, she said, Luke, I'm going to shock you, you need to sit down. And I said, what is it? She said, I saw the Beatles in concert. <laughs> in 1964, and I was like, <gasps> and I was just so distracted for the rest of it. So, apologies. Uh, I've never met anybody who's seen the Beatles in concert before, but there you go. So, I'm going to give you a Beatles reference. Uh, All You Need Is Love, the famous song. There was a 1967 global satellite broadcast, uh, one of the first global satellite broadcasts um, that had ever happened, where the Beatles played that. All You Need Is Love, the famous lyric... Love is all you need. It's easy. Well, the answer might be easy. Like we think, okay, what does the world need? It's love. But it's not as easy sometimes in practice as we think. There's a whole bunch of reasons why it's not easy. Uh, John Lennon, famously, who wrote the the lyrics, uh, famously neglected uh, his son, his first son, Julian Lennon, for most of his childhood. He was unapologetically unfaithful in many of his romantic relationships and marriages. He was the one who said, it's so simple, the world just needs love. But, of course, in practice, it's much harder. It's not as obvious sometimes what it might look like. There's not a lot of consensus around the world about what it looks like in the detail. Particularly, what is the most loving thing to do in a particular situation? Is it more loving for example, to make sure that we look after ourselves before we look after, start loving other people? Is it more loving uh, or just is it more loving just to say, let's focus on the needs of others and not look after ourselves? Is it more loving, for example, if you're a parent, to go, okay, I am just going to provide for my child's immediate needs so that they can learn independence later in life or am I going to provide in a different way Or here's another way of thinking, is it more loving to spend all our time with a few people and go deeply and love them deeply 
Or is it more loving to try to love as many people as we can just a little bit? Tricky, or politically, it's a tricky question, isn't it? Is it more loving to raise interest rates or lower them? It's a hard one. Is it more loving to have a strict policy on refugee numbers or a very flexible policy on refugee numbers? Is it more loving to go to war for the sake and hope of long-term peace? All you need is love, love is all you need, it's easy. Well, it's not actually that easy, is it? In today's passage, we hear Jesus say these remarkable words, revolutionary words, actually, about love in this interaction with this scribe of Israel. And a scribe would have been uh, the ancient equivalent of like a scholar, an intellectual, an academic kind of person, someone who was really knew his stuff, an expert in what we would refer to as the Old Testament. And we have this scribe, he's got this question, but before we get to his question, let's just note a couple of things about this scribe. First of all, he's a listener. He's a listener and an observer of Jesus. And in Mark's gospel, listening or hearing Jesus is always positioned as a good stance towards Jesus, people who hear Jesus. So he's already positioned in a good light. And this scribe has listened to how Jesus has answered, his, answered other questions. He comes to Jesus not to try and trap Jesus or trick him, as some of the religious leaders have done. It seems like he's keen to learn from Jesus. Now, when we look at the interaction that this scribe has with Jesus, most of the interactions seems to be around the topic of love, but there's actually a bigger question that frames this whole interaction. And you notice what the scribe does. He comes up to Jesus, he's got a big question, but the question that he wants to ask is not the question often our modern songwriters want to ask, which he doesn't kind of come up with, teacher, what is love? Baby, don't hurt. No, I won't go there. Or teacher... I want to know what love is. He doesn't ask. That's a question. So many of our pop songs have got these questions of what's love all about. He doesn't ask that. He asks a question that on the surface might not be particularly pressing for us. Which command is the most important of all? Now, I'm not sure if Taylor Swift has a song that's titled Which Command is the Most Important of All. I don't know if it's the most popular kind of lyrical turn of phrase in today's pop climate. But when you go under the surface, he's actually asking a very important question. It's a little bit masked, a little bit by some of the English language. The question is more in the sense of which command stands above all the other commands? Which command ties them all together? Now, for this scribe who knew the commands, he knew the text, he knew what the Bible said, he could recite the commands... This was a big deal. He wanted to know what is the underlying, what is the unifying principle to understand the commandments, to, to make sense of them. Uh, for, for him, it's a little bit like, for some people, we might go through maybe a bit of an existential crisis from time to time where we suddenly look at what we're doing in life, our jobs, our occupation, our training, and we start, well, we, we have, what are we doing? Perhaps... Uh, you might be, like if you're a teacher, for example, you think, okay, I've done all this training to be a teacher, or I'm training to be a teacher, I've got all this information, and you might throw your hands up and you go, what, what am I even here, for? what am I doing this for? What's the, what do I need to remember if I'm a teacher? Why have I spent this, what, how do I make sense of it all? It's this kind of question that this scribe does. He comes up to Jesus, he's got all this stuff from the Old Testament, all this knowledge and he wants to say, what's, what's the most important thing for me to know to make sense of all this stuff? Well, Jesus gives him this answer. 
and he quotes one of the most quoted parts of the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, he's asked about what's the most important commandment, but Jesus' answer doesn't quote any of the Ten Commandments. He starts with uh, the text known as the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. So Jesus begins with the declaration, okay, there's one God, there's one true God. That is the reality that we need to take into consideration. One, the, the existence of God is, should frame how we live, how we think about the world. And then the command is to love God with our whole being, our everything, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And Jesus doesn't quote, interestingly enough, one of the Ten Commandments, which are often framed in the negative. You know, do not have other gods, do not make no do not covet. To understand how to live life with the reality of God being true and the, our creator, he says, learn to love God with your whole being, with every ounce of your being. But interesting, Jesus doesn't end there. You notice he was asked, uh, Jesus was asked which command, singular, so the the, the scribe knows there's heaps of commands and, he, and he's going, Jesus, narrow it down to one that makes sense of all of it. It's very clear he, he's wanting Jesus to give one answer. But Jesus, I don't think Jesus is cheeky because I wouldn't describe Jesus as cheeky, but almost like, it's almost a bit like that he intentionally splits his answer up in two parts. He goes, okay, you want one thing? Well, okay. But second, <laughs> he kind of goes, starts talking. Love your neighbour as yourself. There's no other command greater than these. Now, perhaps surprisingly, again, Jesus doesn't say, love your neighbour more than yourself. Now, as Christians, if you've been around church for a while, we sort of get trained to think we need to put others in, in front of ourselves, and that's a good principle. But Jesus doesn't say, love others more than yourself. Because people who are created by God, people who are made in God's in image, we are actually instinctively designed to take care of ourselves. We eat, we drink, we clothe ourselves, we try to avoid pain because this is how we've been made, to care for ourselves. There's a, there's a level of love for ourselves which isn't selfish. It's not about ego. We instinctively make sure that if there's an obstacle for us breathing, we will remove that obstacle it's a very biblical idea. We don't love our neighbours instead of ourselves. It's that we love our neighbours like we love ourselves. So the same kind of instinctive behaviour that we, are, that we have as, as, as people who are made in God's image to look after ourselves, we are called to have that kind of instinctive behaviour towards others, those who are precious in God's sight, made in his image. Now, this particular command uh, to love others as you love yourself, it's, it's uh, a well-known part of the Old Testament. What Jesus is saying is not particularly new uh, here, but what is new, what is quite revolutionary that is going on is that this is the first recorded time in history that the teaching of loving God and loving others has been brought together in a single idea. The two themes are throughout the Old Testament. The idea of loving God and loving your neighbour as a single idea 
is brought together by Jesus. He's saying, you want to know what the underlying principle to living in God's world is? You know what holds everything together? Makes sense of life? How we live it can be summed up this way. Love God and love your neighbour as yourself. The two can't be separated. Let's have a look at how the scribe then responds. He responds, it's kind of an interesting dynamic between this scribe and Jesus. It's like they're kind of vying to see who's the expert. The scribe says to him, you're right, teacher. Well, of course he's right. (laughs) Jesus, right? You're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So this, this expert in the law has affirmed that Jesus is orthodox, that what Jesus is saying is in line with the scriptures. And that's just important to note, that Jesus isn't coming along and just twisting the scriptures. He's not, the experts in the law are saying, okay, I can see what you're saying here, Jesus. That is, that is completely biblical. That's in line with the scriptures. But he has, adds an extra thing in there which reveals he actually knows a little bit more than just quoting the scriptures. He understands the priority of loving neighbour over burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, what's that? Burnt offerings and sacrifices were things that were commanded by God and one could say as an expression of loving God, but they weren't particularly loving for the neighbour. So can you imagine we, uh, someone is sick or someone's had a child or something, we prepare a meal roster, right? And we say, okay, I'm going to make a lasagna for so-and-so, they're unwell. You know what? I'm going to make it as a burnt offering, so I'm going to char it. I'm going to make it, because that's what God likes. Sacrifice, it's going to be completely charred. And they turn up on their doorstep and go, here you go, here's your lasagna. You know, it's burnt offering. So it's not particularly loving of your neighbour in this example. So this scribe kind of knows... The burnt offerings, there were things that God commanded, they weren't wrong things, but he kind of knows, actually, you know, the way, the chief way that we express our love for God is not in the burnt offerings and sacrifices, which this is what he knows, is actually in loving others. Well, how then does Jesus respond? Verse 33, when Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared to question him any longer so what's going on there well jesus first of all affirms this man's listening and affirms his understanding of scriptures but jesus takes the conversation to the next level you might not have spotted that but jesus introduces a new idea this guy comes up and says what's the most important command that holds them all together and Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God. And the, the guy, you can imagine, goes, I, I, didn't, I didn't ask about the kingdom of God. But Jesus takes it to the next level. You're not far from the kingdom of God. What on earth does that mean? We'll come back to that in a moment. Let's just pause now and just think about how do we respond to this? How do we respond? We've sort of thought about the scribe's response. What we learn here in Jesus' instructions is people who know God... We know there are two things that are held together, love of God and love of neighbour, and they can't be separated. So there can sometimes be a sort of a spectrum that we can drift towards. Uh, There's the kind of person who thinks, well, it's all about loving God and it can be neglecting loving others. And there's people who go, no, it's all about loving others, like kind of maybe the John Lennon kind of approach and not really wanting to have God in the picture at all. 
But what Jesus is saying, you, can, you actually have to hold them together. Loving God without loving our neighbour is not actually loving God. It doesn't reflect God's character. God's character and God's love. You can't kind of say, I love you, God, but I, I don't love this thing that you love. Loving God without loving neighbour is not loving God. And the opposite is also true. Loving neighbour without loving God is not loving a neighbour. Why? If we seek to love our neighbour who is made and loved by God, made as an image bearer of God, but we don't love God, we're not actually loving our neighbour. Now, of course, on one level, we can love our neighbours without being Christians. We probably all know many people who are not particularly religious in the common usage of the word that, are, that, that in a sense, kind of put us to shame for the selflessness and their love. And we can also be Christians and followers of Jesus and day-to-day feel fairly lousy at loving our neighbours. Which is why, I think, Jesus doesn't go so far as to commend the scribe for his understanding that, okay, he seems to understand love of God, love of neighbour, they go together. Jesus doesn't go so far as saying, okay, all you need to know, if you understand that, you've unlocked access to the kingdom. That's not the keys. Jesus says he's not far from the kingdom, but he's not there yet. What does he mean? He's saying that discerning the inseparable connection between loving God and loving others is a key foundational part of understanding the nature of what this kingdom of God is. So sometimes we talk about the kingdom, we hear the kingdom of God, it sounds like a kind of a Bible kind of word, and it is a Bible kind of word, but in the, in the time of Jesus, the kingdom of God was probably better understood as anyone really kind of craving for the world to be as it should be, Right? you could be said to be someone who is craving the kingdom of God even without knowing things, right? So you can kind of say, when you kind of, I mean, even, like, even like those songs where you kind of say, I wish the world was just loving. and be, That's kind of craving the kingdom of God even if you don't believe in God. There's a kind of a sense in which you kind of could be craving it. You're not far from this kind of the way that God has set things up. You're not, way, you're not far from being in God's kingdom ruling exactly the way it should be in peace, and love with Jesus at the centre. You're not, you're, not, you're not far from that. What he's saying also is you're not going to like God's kingdom if you're not compelled by the connection between loving God and loving each other. So you, you can't kind of say, I, I, want, I want the kingdom without the king, right? Or I want the kingdom and the king but without his people. It doesn't work that way. Jesus' response is very positive to describe. You're not far, but it's qualified. Now, as I was preparing this, I was thinking, are there any other examples in the New Testament where Jesus gives a more positive reaction, a more positive response about someone's status in the kingdom than this scribe? So this guy's done pretty well. His answer, you're not far. He's very impressed with the, the man's thinking. But there is an example of someone who goes who Jesus gives even a stronger endorsement. And that is the 
thief on the cross next to Jesus. You might know the, the scene. There's two criminals next to Jesus. One's mocking Jesus. One sees that Jesus is different, he's innocent, and that Jesus has a kingdom. And, and Jesus, he says to Jesus on the cross, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say you're not far from the kingdom of God. He says, no, today you're, you're in. Today you're in. What, what's the difference between the thief on the cross's interaction with Jesus and the scribe's interaction with Jesus? The difference is that the man... The scribe knew the answers, but not the person. Uh, there's an a, um, American preacher, or he's actually Scottish, but he pre- he's, he's got a church in America, a guy called Alistair Begg, who's got quite a famous um, little clip from one of his sermons that he, he, he kind of paraphrases or retells or, um, an interaction, what it would have been like with the thief on the cross kind of getting to the gates of heaven. And, and being asked whether he should be uh, let in to heaven and why he should be let in. And he's kind of this, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, he's making a bit of a point there, but the, he kind of tells his story, he's kind of saying, the thief's there at the gates. And he's like, okay, well, why should you get in? Do you, do you know the doctrine of justification by faith? And the thief's going, sorry, what? You know? <laughs> okay, well, have you been baptised? No, no. <laughs> been hanging on a cross. <laughs> uh, have you been... Um, how long? How much time have you gone? Uh, no, I haven't gone to church in my life. <laughs> well, all right. Well, sorry. Why should we let you in? Oh, the, the guy on the middle cross told me I could come. <laughs> Isn't that so true? The difference between the scribe and the thief is the man knew the answers, but not the person. And this. Thief knows the person, but not all the answers. Now, when we come to this topic of love, we are not, we're going to be not far from the kingdom if we know the answers, but we need to know the person. We need to know that it's only when we know God's love for us that he can transform us to love him and love others. Let's pray. Father, we do... Uh, ask you now that you will be transforming us and taking us uh, to your son. Help us to know him, to know what he has done, to know how he has loved us. We ask that you will help us to be people who deeply know your love for us and the cost it was for you. And help us to be people who respond to what you have done by knowing that we love you by loving others and we love others by loving you. We ask you'll help us to keep these things together in a world so confused about love. Help us to know that you are the true source of all love and goodness and we yearn for the day when that exists in our world in perfection and not brokenness. We do ask that you'll help us to be people who do radiate that love to others. Amen. We invite Annette Tenkate up now, who's going to...